Good morning. When's the last time you have built a fence? <clears throat> I hope it's been a long time. Building fences is hard work, especially if it's not like what you're used to and you don't know how to do it. Uh, we had a bad storm blow through years ago and it blew down a section of our wooden fence. You know, those wooden fences are built basically you've got these sections that are just nailed to posts that are up and a good wind will just blow one of those sections down and uh, anyway I found out how hard it is to put a fence back up when uh, the fence was down what's the purpose of a fence we generally think of it as a barrier as a boundary uh, I saw an article USA Today had not, not too long ago about the rich and famous in California Malibu Beach how they have erected a chain leak fence to keep the riffraff away from them. The rich and famous want to keep uh, the average folks away, so they have created this uh, chain link fence to, uh, to fence them out. And I, I read that and thought, you know, that's, that's what a fence is for, isn't it? It's to keep what you don't want away. That's what it does. Um, and it's a physical statement, isn't it? This is my property, that's your property. See that fence? This is my property, that's your property. My kids are on my property, your kids are on your property. If your kids are on my, I spank my kids when they're on my property, I spank your kids when they're on my property. <laughs> At least that was years ago. Not anymore. But the, the fence not only keeps the unwanted out, it also keeps what you want in, like children. <laughs> well, you do want your children to be protected, and they can run around the backyard as long as there's a good fence, and you're not going to worry about it. Your pets, you can let them wander without being chained up in the backyard because you have a fence that protects them and gives them a barrier that they're not going to cross unless they jump over it or unless they dig under it, but that's another story. When we moved into the house we're currently in, we have a house that has a couple of acres, and it's like fencing that is like very real expensive. So we decided, you know what, why don't we do the invisible fence? That sounds cheap. So we did the invisible fence to keep our dogs in. And it was just brilliant, you know, conceptually. The way that it works is you have this little unit, or actually we had two units sort of spread out, and it creates this cell around your house. And then you stick a collar on your dog. And the dog has this, you know, these electrodes that are pressing into their throat. You've seen these. And if they get outside the cell, or if they, as they approach the edge of the cell, the collar starts beeping, beep, 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 beep. And the closer you get, it gets louder and louder and louder, beep, 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 and faster and faster and more urgent. And I read the instruction manual, and it says, here's how you train the dog. And you, you walk the dog to the edge of the, of the barrier, and it starts beeping, and then you run back to the center of the barrier. You're supposed to train them. Get away from that beeping sound. And then you're also supposed to take them over the line to give them the experience of what happens if they ignore the beeping sound. 
And I just had to laugh when I read the instruction manual that says that when they cross the barrier, the caller sends the dog a static correction. (laughs) What a euphemism. It shocks your dog. It shocks your dog. Well, we had a couple of Labradors. One was amazingly smart. The other balanced the universe. The smart dog, one trip over the line is all it took. Back. And like, she didn't want to get anywhere near the barrier. Done. But the other dog. Kathy and I went for a walk under the delusion that our dogs were trained with this fence. And dog number two, the one that, you know, isn't that sharp, she saw us walking. And she's like, it's time to walk. So she starts running towards us, and I'm thinking, you know, so it all turns slow motion at that point. And here comes the dog, and, and I can hear it beeping. And so I'm going, turn around, turn around. And Kathy's saying, turn around, turn around. The dog back at the house, the other dog is going, come back, come back. <laughs> anyway, I could tell it wasn't happening, so I started going that direction. And uh, sure enough, she crossed the line. And then, it, if, I don't know if you've ever seen this happen. It's not a pleasant picture. Because your dog stops, and, it, and the head just sort of goes sideways. And it, it was horrible to watch. And Kathy's like, go help her. So I'm, I'm running over there, and, and, I, and I'm trying to get the dog to move without touching the dog. But uh, it didn't work, so I reached down, and now I'm getting shocked as we're going back to the... Anyway, so we didn't, we didn't last long with this uh, static correction collar thing. Uh, dog number one, she's like trained for life. You could have no collar on her at all. She didn't want to get away from the house. Dog number two never, never figured it out. But I thought, you know what? I thought about this as my lips were tingling after that. I am so glad that God doesn't put those collars on us. Because if we cross the line all the time, we get close to the barrier and we'll hear the beeping of the Holy Spirit saying, you know what, it'd be a good time to turn around right now. But boy, we plow ahead and uh, that static correction does its thing eventually. But aren't you glad the Lord doesn't zap us every time we cross the line? There was a study done some years ago on a playground near a busy street. They first observed the kids that were playing on the playground before there was a fence around its perimeter. There was a playground, and there was a very generous area of St. Augustine grass, and then there was the road. And, of course, they didn't let the kids get anywhere near the road, but they watched. They did the study, and they watched the kids. The kids would never leave the playground. They'd never get in the grass because they were afraid of the cars. But when they put a fence up, without saying anything to the kids, now the kids would get out of the playground, they'd get in the grass. Some kids even climbed the fence and were shaking the fence because they knew they were secure. The fence gave them security. And it gave them, the study concluded, an emotional security to have that fence. Anyway, all this leads to the fact that the greatest fence that God gives us is this book. 
This book is like a fence in our lives. It is not intended to constrain us, but to train us where the line is for our protection, to give us wisdom, to help us enjoy the benefits of life, not to, uh, not to zap us. The Bible is like a fence. But here's the thing. Unlike the kids, the dogs, etc., etc., God leaves the gate open. There is, there is a way out. You can ignore the fence. You can walk through the gate out into the street if you want to, and God may not stop you or me. The choice is ours. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 21. 2 Kings 21 is where we will start as we look at a king named Manasseh. King Manasseh. We're going through a series of hand-picked kings in the books of Kings and Chronicles. And today we come to a king who was arguably the worst. Arguably the very worst. King Manasseh. Second Kings 21, we're going to start right in verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. As is typical for each of the kings as they are introduced, there is a summary of how they are viewed right up front. Typically, the the mother, because many of these kings had multiple wives, so we're told who the mother was, and also how long they reigned, and were they, were they good or evil in the sight of God. Manasseh, we're told, was evil, and we're told he reigned 55 years. Hitler reigned 12 years. Stalin, 12 years. Manasseh, 55 years. He is the longest reigning king in Judah, in fact, of all the Hebrew kings, and he was the worst. Even though Manasseh had one of the godliest fathers, we looked at him last week, Hezekiah, somehow the apple did not fall close to the tree. Manasseh took a hard left. He was one of the worst kings. And beside, beside simply go, beyond simply going outside the fences of God's law, Manasseh tore the fences down. Look at verse 3 at what he did. He rebuilt rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. For he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft, and used divination and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house 
which the Lord has said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, if only they will observe to do all that according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Remember one of the purposes of First and Second Kings is to show why Israel went into exile. Remember the difference between Kings and Chronicles? It's like the same material, why repeat it? Because they have different emphasis. First and Second Kings talks about a lot of the bad stuff that the kings did because it explains why the exile happened. Why did God take them out of the land after he did all that work to get them in the land? Because God says, if you sin and don't repent, I'm going to take you out of the land. Being in the land is a privilege. It's not a prerogative. I'll take you right out just like I took you right in. And God has done that. I don't know if you've noticed. He's done that multiple times for Israel. Take them out, bring them back in. Take them out, bring them back in. And we're told here the sins of Manasseh that basically led up to the final straw in God's mind. Manasseh adopted a worldview that is astounding, even by today's low standards. Idolatry, astrology, child sacrifice, witchcraft, sorcery. The list that's given here is a specific violation to Deuteronomy 18. You may even have Deuteronomy 18 in your margin there for some of those sins. We don't know why, but Manasseh sought to break God's law with as much passion as his father Hezekiah sought to obey it. In a literal sense, he rebuilt what Hezekiah had torn down, and in another sense, he tore down the fences that Hezekiah built. Well, let's leave 2 Kings and look at 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 33. We're going to look at it, the same account or the same events through a different lens. This week I got my oil changed in my speedy Toyota Prius. And as I was sitting there in the waiting room, reading or whatever I was doing, I noticed this man across the room just kept kind of looking at me. And, you know, I, I didn't make much of it until I was leaving, and the man got up and crossed the room and came up to me. And he says, I think I know you. I hate it when this happens. <laughs> Because it never is a stroke to my ego. I'm always thinking, oh, he's going to really know who I am. No, they never know who I am. I just look like people, I guess. He said, and this is great, he goes, are you the CEO of Apple Computer? (laughs) I was filtering responses left and right. But top on my list was, Really? You think I'd be here changing my own oil? (laughs) If I was the CEO? Anyway, he was disappointed to find out that I wasn't him. And I was disappointed when I looked up what his picture looked like. (laughs) 
anyway, so I left, as I left uh, after my oil was changed, I got out on the highway, and I was cruising along on the highway, and as you do, you, you look down at the speedometer. And particularly, I'm attentive to the speedometer on, the, on Highway 380, west of pretty much anything west of Prosper, because now it's all 50 miles an hour. I can remember when it was 70 miles an hour on 380. It was glorious. 50 miles an hour. I mean, anyway. So I looked down at the speedometer. I was going 90. And it shocked me, because I thought, it doesn't feel like I'm going 90. And then I realized that when they had reset my, you know, to, to reset the oil thing on my Prius, you have to hold the miles per hour thing down while you're starting the car up, and it resets to your oil, you know, change your oil gauge. Well, they had it on kilometers. <laughs> but, boy, it's like, whoa, I'm going 90. And so I just, I hit it, and I'll, then all of a sudden, okay, I'm going 55, great. But I remember back when I was in school, and I say school, I think it was elementary school. I think this was, and this was back in the 70s. I, I know this uh, makes me sound really young to some of you and really old to others of you. But I was in elementary school in the 70s, and I remember it was back about that time they were trying to get us to go metric. Can you remember back in those days? It's like, what's the point? There is no way we're going to ever go metric, but they were teaching it to us. And so one of the ways that they were teaching us uh, how to in the whole metric system was this, this video, this film that they showed us of this uh, family driving in Europe. And so they're driving in Europe, and, this, uh, and the wife says to her husband, the husband's driving, the wife says to her husband, oh, look, honey, the speed limit's 90. And he goes, 90? Ha! And then he says, 90? 90 and his face kind of you know turns into this and he starts speeding up and he's going you know 90 miles an hour and of course the next scene shows him being stopped by a policeman and the lesson is there's a difference between 90 miles an hour and 90 kilometers per hour as I discovered myself this week but it turns out that the uh, the policeman understood the difference and there is a standard You can be ignorant of the standard, but you're still held to the standard. Um, One of the purposes, as we said here, of 2 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, is to show the difference in Manasseh. 1 Kings and uh, 2 Kings emphasize the sin, but 2 Chronicles emphasizes something positive. And you'd never think that we'd find something positive in the life of Manasseh. Second Chronicles 33, look down at verse 6. We're told, this is not the positive part yet, we're told, he made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and he practiced witchcraft, used divination, the rest we've read. But Second Chronicles 33, verse 6, tells us that uh, he made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, the Hinnom Valley. The Hinnom Valley is where this is. And if you've been to Jerusalem, you probably remember the Hinnom Valley, or at least the, um, the name Hinnom Valley. If you were to look at Jerusalem, so from your perspective, you know, imagine my hands are, are Jerusalem, the western side, of there's a valley that goes along the western side and then along the southern side of Jerusalem. This is the Hinnom Valley. 
and we're told that Manasseh caused his children, particularly his sons, to pass through the fire in the Hinnom Valley. What does it mean to pass through the fire? The Ammonites had a godless practice that they would sacrifice children to the, their god, Molech. And the uh, Molech is a Hebrew, sort of a Hebrew word that, that refers to the one who rules Molech. And the Ammonites would do this. They had a metal statue, a metal statue of, of Molech with his hands out like this. And they would heat up that statue to where the hands were white hot. And they would take the baby boys and put them, live baby boys, in the white hot hands of Molech and just let, let the child die right there. And this was offering your son to Molech and this is what's called passing through the fire. Manasseh did this in the Hinnom Valley. And it is surreal to stand in Jerusalem and to look at this Hinnom Valley. I mean, I've been there many, many times and thought about it many, many times of what Manasseh did. In fact, this was so such a heinous act that Jesus coined the term from that valley, and we get our word hell from it, Gehenna. We get our word hell from the Greek word Gehenna, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew Gehenna. Geh means valley, henna means Hinnom, Hinnom Valley. And Jesus used the Hinnom Valley as a metaphor for hell. It was such evil that occurred there. God sent prophets, we're told, but they ignored, Manasseh ignored these prophets. God sent the fence builders, if you want to go with that metaphor, but Manasseh ignored them, and he offered his own children. They paid no attention. A man named Bertrand Russell was asked one time what he would say if God were to meet him. Russell said this, I would tell him he did not give me enough evidence. I, I had to chuckle as, uh, as I read that because I think the problem we struggle with today is not a lack of truth, but it's a suppression of truth. The truth is there, but we suppress the truth. Romans 1 tells us this, that God's given us all we need in creation to prove his existence. We see his power in the creation, but we suppress that truth. We don't want to look at that truth, and we redefine it. His purpose for our lives, if we take it deeper and look at the scriptures, is to realize that our sin separates us from God. And he, in his love, doesn't just squash us with his thumb, but he reached out to us through his son, Jesus Christ, by sending Christ to die on the cross to pay for our sins and promises us that if we believe that, our sins are forgiven. He bridged that gap that we could never bridge. God did that. Back in 1675, there was a law in Massachusetts that went into effect that required church doors to be locked during services because people were leaving in the middle of the message, if you can imagine that. It was a law. It's like, is this going to make people believe? Is this going to change people's lives? We should try that, Harry. Why don't, we, why don't we try that in our class from now on? We'll just lock these doors and no one can leave till the class is over. It's crazy because you can lock the doors, but you can't make people believe it. You can't make them take to heart 
C.S. Lewis wrote this, There are two kinds of people in this world, those who bend their knee to God and say, Your will be done, and those who refuse to bend their knee, and God says to them, All right then, your will be done. Well, look at verse 11, uh, 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. The word here for hooks in the Hebrew is a word that means to uh, what you would use to hook a large fish through the gills. It was a, specifically, it was a hook that went through your nose. You know, like what we do with bulls? We stick a, 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 a ring through the real sensitive nose of a bull because that bull, it really hurts if you do that. And the bull is more tame. You can lead a bull around by the, by the ring in his nose. Well, this was Manasseh. He is pictured as a wild beast that has to be hooked. He was so wild. Hey, lock those doors back there. How's that for a first impression? (laughs) Manasseh had to be led away with hooks. Hooks in the nose. All the way to Babylon. The word should be a great lesson. We're told that Manasseh and his people were spoken to by God. They, They ignored the Lord. Therefore, God sent Manasseh to Babylon with hooks. Here's the first principle from the text today. What we refuse to learn through instruction, God may teach us through struggle. What we refuse to learn through instruction, God may teach us through struggle. God's word is a great teacher. But pain is a great substitute teacher. The speedometer is a teacher, but the traffic ticket is a great substitute teacher. If we ignore the standard, maybe the results of ignoring the standard will teach us the standard. God's discipline is different for every child, and thankfully it is that we're not a cookie-cutter. We don't have a cookie-cutter Savior, a cookie-cutter Holy Spirit in our lives. Think about your own kids or grandkids. They have different personalities. They respond to discipline differently. One of our daughters, you could just give her a harsh face and she'd ball up in tears. The other one is like, you could whip her. And it's like, you know, this isn't doing any good and I'm getting tired. God works this each differently. But what we refuse to learn through instruction, God may teach us through the struggle. Thankfully, he starts with instruction. He gives us his word. He gives us the fence. But if we go outside the fence and get in the street, it may take the pain of that experience to teach us to get back inside the fence. In Ephesus, if you go to the archaeological site of Ephesus today in Turkey, 
you'll go through the whole site and then you'll come out and of course as is standard operation you come out into gift shops and one of the my favorite sign in the gift shops there at Ephesus is big sign that says genuine fake watches <laughs> if you've been to Ephesus you know that sign I love that genuine fake watches at least they're honest you know not like one US company that used to have an action figure called the Invisible Jim. You know, Invisible Jim, J-I-M. His name is Invisible Jim. Why is it called Invisible Jim? Because all you get is the box. There's no action figure inside. It's Invisible Jim. And then inside, you know, you're looking and you go, wow, he really is invisible. There's nothing there. This was a real product. You can look it up because everything on the internet is true. You can look it up. The, the package says, these marketing taglines are great. The package says, as not seen on TV. <laughs> Camouflage suit sold separately. And the company said that they got no complaints about the em empty boxes, but one spokesman for the distributor said that when the first shipment arrived, they thought there was a mistake because it was empty. Turns out, no, it's just fantastic marketing. Good marketing, great packaging empty box. I read that and thought, that is the world's system, isn't it? We have needs in our lives that are desperate sometimes. I think about Christ, our dear Savior, out in the wilderness, starving. After day 40, Satan comes to him and says, you know, there's lots of stones around here. Just turn them into bread. Christ could have done it. He made bread out of multiplied bread. We, we know the miracle. Christ could have done it. He was starving. He could have met his need, but he didn't do it. The world is always coming to us with shortcuts. You've got a need. Fill in the blank. What is that need? What is God not answering in your life right now? There's an invisible gem for you. You can buy it. You can obtain it somehow. But here's the thing. When you open that box and you get to experience the truth of what the world offers, it's empty. We have paid for a lie. And here's the crazy thing. We do it again and again and again. What we refuse to learn through instruction, God may teach us through struggle. And maybe we would add the words repeated struggle. It's an empty box. And in that empty box place, as we are sitting in the ashes of our own doing, God uses that to draw us back. Because God's goal in the struggle is not punishment, but discipline. He's a parent. He is a father. And his goal is not to crush us, but to change us. And he goes through that process so that we will repent. That's his goal. Think about any, any type of discipline, really, the goal is repentance. Church discipline, that should be the goal. Church discipline is not to get someone to leave the church. Church discipline is to, is to motivate the person being disciplined to repent, to come back, to be part of the fellowship again. This is God's goal, and God sometimes uses pain as a substitute teacher. Well, look what happened. With, with Manasseh and his nose hooks. Verse 12, 
When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. That's almost unbelievable to read, isn't it? And notice we only read it in Chronicles. We don't read it in Kings. In Kings, emphasize the sin to show why the exile happened. Why would Manasseh's repentance be here in Chronicles? Because it was written to the people coming back into the land, showing if you will repent, God will restore you. Look at even Manasseh this happened to. It could surely happen to you as well. Even Manasseh repented, which is amazing. In his distress, we're told, he called out to God. And we know the repentance is real. Some of the things are listed here, but look down at verse 16. Verse 16 says, He set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Peace offerings and thank offerings. Why is that significant? Because peace offerings and thank offerings were optional offerings. These were not uh, essential or required. They were optional offerings that go on top of the burn offering. The burn offering, that was basic. You had to do that. But a peace offering and a thank offering went above and beyond. This is showing Manasseh's true heart. He didn't have to do this, but his, his conversion was genuine. It's amazing to think that we will see Manasseh in glory. But he's going to be there, right beside Rex. (laughs) Just seeing if you're awake, brother. Good to know that you are. And right beside Wayne. (sighs) Manasseh, this rascal, turned out to be one who worshipped the Lord. Now, Turn, if you would, one more time to the New Testament book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. The Hinnom Valley, if you were to go to the Hinnom Valley today, not only would you see uh, beautiful parks, children playing, concerts, it's a beautiful place, but in the Hinnom Valley there's also a museum called Katif Hinnom. Katif is a Hebrew word that means shoulder the shoulder of the Hinnom Valley. It's kind of right in the bend of it. And at Katif Hinnom, in 1979, archaeologists found some burial chambers. Uh, burial chambers, not that big a deal until you get find what's in it. It was sort of a, a discovery by accident. They, they knew the burial chambers were there, but what they didn't realize is that the, the tops of the burial chambers had fallen and covered everything. And so they thought that the ceiling that had fallen was the floor. So they looked at it and thought, oh, there's nothing here. And they started digging and they realized, wait a minute, this is the ceiling that's fallen in. There's a ton here. And they found all sorts of things, pottery, jewelry, arrowheads. But the most significant find pointed to the scriptures. There was a woman, they found bones, there was a woman who was buried there in this particular uh, tomb. And with her, she had some silver amulets some silver uh, jewelry beside her. 
and when they they were scrolls and when they unrolled these little bitty scrolls and were able to decipher the Hebrew that was written on it this is what they found the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace sound familiar Harry absolutely this woman was buried with these amulets of the high priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6. And here's the, here's the amazing thing. These amulets date to the first temple period, so they are the earliest copies of written scripture that we have. First temple period is like, you know, long time ago, 700 B.C. But this, the 7th century B.C., I should say, is the same century as Manasseh. I don't know if it's the same time, but it's the same century. could be the same time because Manasseh reigned half, you know, 55 years. But I wonder if this is the era of his repentance. Who knows? But it is amazing that in the very valley where he did those atrocities, there was a woman buried about that same time who was basically declaring her faith in the Lord. 1 Timothy 1 the Apostle Paul writes of his conversion experience. And I'll, I'll explain how this relates here in, in just a second. But look at 1 Timothy 1, down at verse 13. Paul writes, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul says in verse 13, here's who I was. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Now, we might think, ah, blasphemer? You know, that's not really a big deal. Persecutor, violent aggressor? Well, we read in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul had his hand in the murder of Christians. The murder of Christians. And Paul says, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Don't misunderstand. He's not saying that ignorance is innocence. He doesn't mean I was innocent because I was ignorant. He, he talks about ignorance as being a context of unbelief. I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And then verse 14, he says, the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. This is where we get that phrase, chief of sinners, in a different translation. It says chief of sinners. But here it says, I was foremost of all. I was the greatest of all sinners. I was the worst of all sinners, the Apostle Paul says, because I persecuted the church. I killed Christians. Or I had Christians killed. And whether Paul was or wasn't the worst is debatable. But the reality is, he felt he was. And honestly, in our heart of hearts, 
we think we are. Because nobody knows our own sin more than we do, except Christ. (laughs) Christ knows far more. You know, we show to the world one level, and it's possible that you could have made it all the way through this Sunday without showing any sin to anybody. Now, I know for some of us that's really tough, (laughs) but we can do it. We can fake it, can't we? We're really good at faking it. But we can't fake it at home. Our family sees the real deal, don't they? They know we're sinners. Our kids know we're sinners. Our grandkids eventually will know we're sinners. But we know we're sinners. We know the depth of our heart that we don't even share with our spouse. We know the depth of our heart that only in rare times that we will even be honest with God about. But here's, here's the scary, well, it's not scary. Here's the amazing reality. If the worst, if our worst awareness of ourselves is here, God knows it all the way down here. He knows what we don't even know. Thank God we don't know it. Or we would curl up in a ball of shame and hopelessness. But the greater we realize the depth of our sin, to quote Paul, his grace, verse 14, the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. If you know you're the chief of sinners, then what do you know about the grace of God? God's grace just got a whole lot bigger because he saved you and he saved me. In fact, Paul's point here is in verse 16, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, meaning if God can save me the worst, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for for those who would believe in him for eternal life. If God can save Paul, he can save anybody. And this is how it relates to Manasseh. If God can save Manasseh, he can save anybody. Who have you been praying for for years who has still not come to Christ? Don't give up. Don't give up on those people. What if at year, you know, 47, someone had given up praying for Manasseh out of his 55 years? We don't know exactly where in that process he came to know the Lord, but we get the impression it was a long, long time before Manasseh repented. Don't ever give up. I had in my Bible, in an older Bible that I still use when my mom was alive, Uh, Next to Luke 18, verse 1, in which Jesus said, and he taught them, uh, it said, and he taught them a parable that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I had my mom's name written next to that verse, praying that she would leave the life that she was in at the time and um, would repent and ultimately disciple other young women out of that life. And it never happened. My mom died in a horrible way. And uh, anyway, I, I read that and I think, you know what? This reminds us that we've got to remember that life, this life is not all of life. Like we talked about last week, it's got to go beyond this life. That resurrection, our resurrection life also has to factor in to the life we're living now. Well, here's the second lesson that the text teaches us, both in Manasseh and in Paul. It's this. God stands ready to forgive even the worst sinner. God stands ready 
to forgive even the worst sinner. Even the worst sinner. And you know, sometimes people die and we don't know how they died and what state they died in. Or maybe they had a, an experience as a child and walked, came forward and walked the aisle or whatever. Placed their faith in Christ, we thought they did when they were kids, but then, you know, wandered off and died and, you know, in a state where we think, wow, were they ever saved? And that's a question we have, and we would love to know the answer to that. Or even if somebody, you know, died and we, we don't even know if they ever placed their faith in Christ. Think about Samson. Think about Samson for a moment. Born, miraculously born, and he was born a Nazarite, supposed to be set apart for God all his life, and yet you look at Samson's life, compromise, whole compromise. And he died just as tragic death, and you think, was Samson saved or was, did God just use him? And then we read in the book of Hebrews, in the Hall of Faith, chapter 11, how Samson is listed there as one commended by his faith. Samson. So we're told in the book of Hebrews that Samson was saved. But we look in the book of Judges and we scratch our heads. We don't see it. But God sees it. And so you're going to look at a life, I'm going to look at lives, and we're going to wonder, why don't they trust the Lord? Did they die in faith? We can't know for sure, especially when you factor in the whole doctrine of election. If they are elect, if they are predestined, they will believe before they die. And if they're not, and how all that works is beyond our comprehension, except the Bible clearly teaches it. God predetermines, he elects, he predestines. At the same time, we are fully held responsible and fully given the opportunity to believe. Amazing. Amazing. But predestination actually is a great comfort because if someone is, is predestined to know the Lord, then they're not going to die without trusting in Jesus Christ. God stands ready to save even the worst sinner. I think it's ironic that in times past, the Hinnom Valley was a place where children were killed. And today, when you go to Jerusalem, and I've seen it, children play there. It's beautiful. And it's almost like the valley itself has been redeemed. The worst place, a place that Jesus pointed to as a metaphor of hell, is today, anyway, a place that is beautiful and a place that uh, children play. I think about Manasseh in the same way. He was redeemed. He was redeemed. So never give up on someone that you think is too far gone. And can I also get personal for a second? Never give up on yourself. Because, again, nobody knows your sin more than you do. And Satan would want nothing more than you to get so discouraged with the fact that you just can't seem to follow God. The reality is following God is not being perfect. It's just being honest. That you come to him in confession and daily cleansing your heart before him. And um, this is what's essential. Don't ever give up on yourself. Don't ever give in and say, you know what? I'm just done trying. Don't ever quit. Please don't ever quit. There's a lot of people that are counting on you and looking to you and praying for you. Don't ever give up on anyone else as well. Manasseh changed. Paul changed. 
God can change lives. He still does. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're committed to changing our lives, first of all through the instruction of Scripture and then, and then through the instruction of experience, if we ignore the Scripture, if we ignore the speedometer, if we ignore the fences that you've set up for our protection. Thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to teach us and to motivate us to repent to give us enough of those empty boxes where we sit surrounded by empty boxes until one day our eyes are opened, how ridiculous this is, and we want to walk with you. Thank you for those daily reminders, including our time today with King Manasseh. And Lord, thank you for saving this man, not just for the sake of Manasseh, but for our sakes for listing his horrible sins and then his amazing conversion tells us your power to change lives. Father, each of us just lifts up now that individual we're praying for that still seems so stiff-necked against Jesus Christ that you would soften their heart, open their eyes, let them see the truth of the beauty of the gospel and place their faith and the Savior who died for their sins. And for each of us, Lord, as we read the Word and become more and more aware of how far we are away from the holy standard of Jesus Christ, let this be a deeper appreciation of your grace, not a deeper sense of shame on our part. Let confession do its simple cleansing work and draw us close to you. May we never give up, never give up. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. John, can you put that picture up? Public service announcement. Uh, Suzanne Curley has a friend who has a pump organ that is for free, but it has to go this week. So if you're interested in this antique pump pump organ, let Suzanne Curley know she's right up here on the front. Um, Okay, I hope to see everyone next week. Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.